This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 24th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Last year was heralded among the best, if not the best, year for school choice ever, but this year is shaping up to be very different, where culture war fights, state-level curriculum mandates, and other legislative edicts have taken center stage. Meanwhile, educational freedom in the broadest sense hasn't. Chris Stewart is CEO of the Bright Beam Network. He says the culture war fights aren't good for school choice, and one side is clearly winning. Right now, a lot of states are having their legislative sessions, and as we hopefully are closing out this uh, pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a lot of parents have been been witness to their children um, attending school virtually. They've been more engaged in the process because it has been more important, more essential for them to be engaged in the process, not just for schools being closed, but also uh, a lot easier for parents to observe uh, young people uh, being educated. Um, And so a lot of states have adopted some pretty dramatic school choice measures. One of the complaints that I hear from the people who are defenders of the status quo or defenders of public schools will say, they'll say hey look school choice may be fine for the kids who leave but for the kids who remain in public schools uh, or traditional public schools they may be at a disadvantage one because the their classmates uh have departed who may have been contributing a lot to the classroom but also because the kids who left that's a self-selecting group And so in addition to resources being drained from public schools, siphon is the word that I hear used uh, most often in that regard, Uh, you get an inaccurate picture of the performance of an educational institution uh, because of that. And what do you think of that? Uh, I've definitely heard the narrative. I mean, this is the self-protection narrative of the traditional public schools who don't want any of the per-people income leaving the traditional schools to go to another body. So they have to form a a narrative uh, that helps them kind of uh, rationalize why people would want to leave. It falls apart on several different levels. I mean, one, there's been a research basis for believing that there isn't a a loss or a, a downside for the district for people to have the ability to choose. And one that I can point to is, I know that years ago, Pat Wolf uh, in Arkansas did a study of the Milwaukee uh, school choice program to see if this was true. And it turns out that when you gave everybody choice, especially low-income people and people in Milwaukee who wouldn't normally have other choices, it didn't necessarily um, um, drain the school district of all of its children and all of its brightest children and all of its best parents. Uh, if you think about the kind of the anatomy of that narrative, it falls apart on so many different levels. The first one is that it's the best kids that leave, the brightest, the easiest, easiest to educate. A lot of school choice opportunities are specifically for students that have lots of needs like uh, special needs, Um, um, kids with dyslexia, kids with who are deaf and blind, um, kids who uh, have uh, have need for specialized services that they can't get within the district. So in some ways, the district is winning uh, when those kids find a very specialized program somewhere else that is still costly uh, for that student. 
Uh, so the the better student narrative is wrong, and it's insulting for one. The better parent narrative is also wrong. So imagine saying that the people who still choose traditional public schools are the least intelligent ones. That's part of this narrative. This narrative is saying you're you're taking all the smart parents who are smart enough to get out, and you're leaving behind all the dumb parents. That's an insulting narrative. There are people that literally choose their neighborhood public school for a very specific reason. We might think it's a crappy school. They still choose it for one reason or another, because uh, they want the football team or they want the sports or their kid happens to be thriving in that school that we all think is is not good. So again, the, the better parent narrative is is kind of wrong in, in that way too. And then, you know, the siphoning, like the money, the per pupil income part of it just fundamentally gets, uh, gets it wrong in that the money is for the child. The money is is literally a state. That's why they call it per pupil income. It's for the pupil and the needs of the pupil. And it's a state allocation for that child to be educated. And we should all, as a society, want that child to be educated wherever it makes the most sense, like wherever that child's going to reach their highest potential. So where are you based? I'm in Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have seen uh, a lot of fights over collective bargaining with respect to public school employees in Minnesota seems to be ground zero for that. Mm. Right now, we're having a teacher strike in Minneapolis public schools, first one in 50 years, but there's one threatened every two years. So, I mean, it's not like it's, you know, it's it's kind of like the eruption of the volcano, uh, but every two years, the vol volcano gets close to erupting. We have, uh, in, in my home state of Kentucky, We've seen some school choice measures passed, as a lot of states have done in the last uh, couple of years. Um, and yet I also see these same lawmakers who endorse this broad range of choices also seeking to impose some set of uh, structures, restrictions on what is taught and what is not taught in public schools. Uh, you in Florida, you pointed out before we started recording that it's actually much broader than that, at least at that state, which is you you have an extremely high level of school choice operating in Florida and yet dramatic restrictions on what the private sector broadly is allowed to engage in. Uh, you know, as as a private arrangement between employers, employees, students, teachers. Yeah, I think this is one of the the things that I would point out as one of the most critical mistakes of libertarians right now is that they are hitching their wagon to cultural war and cultural warriors and allowing school choice to be taken over by Republicans and uh, postmodern uh, conservatives who actually don't believe anything that old conservatives used to believe in. They just believe in a win and a, you know, a kind of a Machiavellian, just the means justify the end type of thing right now. Libertarians aren't pointing out, for instance, that school choice should not be associated with the bigotry of people that want to use the state to tell everybody what we should learn or how we should learn or what we should consider to be the one heritage story of the United States or what should be the one ideology that we should choose over others and which ones we should exclude. That's not a very libertarian thing to do, but we're participating in it right now because we, and I shouldn't say we, some libertarians are participating in it because they believe that it's going to lead to the law that we want, which is school choice, which is a very pragmatic, problematic thing to do. Uh, um, and, and here's why. 
the idea that I hear coming out of Cato and others who are some of my friends around, you know, libertarian circles around, um, well, listen, we won't have any of this culture war stuff if we just get school choice laws on the books because it won't be necessary anymore. People will just have school choice and you want to listen. If you want an Afrocentric academy and you want a white supremacist academy, hey, have at her, right? Both of you guys can go do your thing. You can have the academy of, you know, uh, the Louis Farrakhan Academy and you can have, you know, the the Richard Spencer Academy, right? <laughs> the, the phrase I use is the Huey P. Newton Academy. Yeah, for... Huey P. Newton, which I would definitely <laughs> love more, be very honest with you, which I would love more than I would love the Richard Spencer Academy. Sure. But, um, but the, the problem with that is we're mixing up two things here and we're mixing up our principles, right? So, uh, um, first of all, white supremacy is objectively bad in my mind and good people of good moral conscience should be able to say that. But even if you don't believe that or whatever, I'm fine with it. We can just, we can disagree on it, but there are some things that are objectively bad. And if they help you get to school choice, uh, be in your mind somehow, you know, that it makes sense that this will get me to school choice. I still have a problem with you because I think you're lacking values and I think libertarians are principled people. But let's say that that's not your problem. I think your logic is the problem in this case because Florida is the most mature school choice market in the United States. Florida is one of the markets where 44, 45, some big number of, of parents already have kids in choice schools. That's one of the things that Jeb Bush did very well while not stepping into the culture wars. Right. Jeb Bush did a very good job of erecting something that was good for everybody and staying out of the culture war stuff. But it now is in the hands of a person who's basically like uh, a, a, a central casting villain for libertarians because uh, DeSantis is creating top-down state policies that uh, um, say what can and can't be said in schools, but not just in schools, also in private schools and in private businesses. So this anti-woke stuff, all of this anti-woke stuff or whatnot, for libertarians to believe it won't come home to roost in other parts of the, the, the world that we care about, it's just it's insane. So let me agree in part and disagree in part. Okay. One is <laughs> one good. is that one is that I think it is I think it is broadly not as a, very much appreciated uh, that people like DeSantis are placing such broad restrictions and with the help of the Florida legislature, to be clear, uh, on what ought to be considered private sector activities. That is to say, voluntarily uh, activities that are voluntarily undertaken. And I, I think that people who are inclined to like him ought to understand that, hey, look, when you tell people that they cannot engage in specific ways, you are infringing upon their liberty. And that's a really important thing to do. On, on the other point, I think my colleague Neil McCluskey would, would say that uh, school choice gives parents the escape hatch, broadly speaking, but it, but again, it doesn't prevent uh, lawmakers from engaging in what I would argue is bad, inappropriate lawmaking with respect to how schools conduct themselves. So I think you just defeated uh, my my friend Neil's point, right? I think you just defeated it with what. Well, you what just was said. the what, uh, it, characterize what you think his his point was? I think his point is that if we had school choice, much of this culture war stuff. Uh, would not be a problem. And I'm saying those are two totally different issues. Separate them because it's not okay. true. Because, because choice, and you're saying, and you you're saying still that, have that as because a lawmakers are just going to undertake that no matter what. 
They're doing it right now in one of the most choice heavy, in two of the most choice, Arizona and in Florida, two of the most choice heavy places. The idea that school choice inoculates you from bad law that libertarians should be screaming out is bad law in the first place. So the only reason to ignore that part is if you want to be a convenient libertarian, what I call a lino. If you want to be a limousine lino, <laughs> which is basically to say, I still want to have martinis with the guys that are writing that bad law, so I'm just going to pretend that school choice is the thing we should focus on. It's not true. It's just not true. Those guys are passing laws where every libertarian should stand up and say right now that school choice aside, these laws are objectively bad. So objective, objective, objectively wrong, I should say. Recently, the Heritage Foundation, and I spoke about this with uh, Neil McCluskey, um, the Heritage Foundation recently came out with a with a piece. I don't know if it was a report or just a, a, a short essay that was basically, hey, we got to engage on this culture war stuff, and this is the side we need to be on. <laughs> and <laughs> broadly speaking, uh, to hear Neil's version of that event, so I kind of wish he were here right now to, to take up for himself, <laughs> but uh, to hear his his take on that was that, well, broadly speaking, the school choice movement pushed back and said, no, 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 choice is for everyone. And that is that the, the broad choice is the, is the goal. Yeah, that's, that's, that, um, that sounds great. That sounds quaint. It's losing. It's the losing portion of the school choice movement right now. So the guys, so, so those guys sent out a tweet saying, you guys are wrong. You guys are wrong about this. Those guys are like, we're getting laws passed. So thank you for your tweet. Thank you for your, your gentle kind of urging. Hey guys, maybe this is wrong. Thank you for that. But we're winning and we're winning big. We, we are winning governors and we are winning lawmakers or we are having it not just, we're not winning on Fox news. We're winning in law. So we are getting laws passed while you guys send out these gentle kind of reminders of, hey, guys, choices for everybody. Listen, it's not for me anymore. I'm stepping out of the choice movement because as a black libertarian American who's a Christian, who has kids that I want educated the way I want them educated, I no longer have a seat in the right wing postmodern conservative school choice movement that's passing laws right now. And I really don't even have a seat with the libertarians who I consider to be friends who are principled people but are super weak right now in the face of this serious assault on our rights. It so, just makes no sense. Oh, let me say one more thing about this sure. too, just really quickly. I think all of this is going to hurt us in the long run because there are conservatives who aren't postmodern conservatives. There are traditional conservatives in states like mine and others who actually have fought voucher programs and have fought school choice specifically because they believe that it is the camel's nose into the tent of public government control over private enterprises. So if you um, allow a government money to start coming into their Catholic schools, the government's going to start having a hand in saying what can happen in those schools. And for years, we have told those conservatives, that's not true. That's not true. The schools will be able to like just some basic things they'll have to abide by, like, you know, civil rights law, whatever. But, you know, in the, in the main, that won't be, you know what we're doing right now? We're proving the opposite. DeSantis and others are literally doing what those conservatives, the traditional conservatives, said was going to happen. The laws you pass for public schools, once they start taking public money in private schools, those schools will also have to. He's going further. He's also saying private businesses 
uh, have to abide by these crazy laws. So traditional conservatives who were against school choice because they thought exactly this was going to happen are also now being proven right, right? So for school choice programs that are funded via tax credit, you know, mm-hmm. many states have Blaine amendments on the books that that explicitly prevent, I'm putting it in scare quotes, public money from su- to, from supporting private education. Um, you know, uh, many of these states, the, the workaround for school choice seems, uh, well, clever. The win case in 2010, Justice Anthony Kennedy said, hey, look, the money's not the public's until it touches the public treasury. And that is not the case with uh, tax credit funded uh, educational options. You think even in, in light of those kinds of programs that the kinds of laws that people like Ron DeSantis and others have been pushing in state legislatures, you think those will hold up and overwhelm uh, those programs? Um, It's a good question. I think it's an interesting question. It leads me to believe that one of the primary things we have to do in discussions like this is separate school choice from what I consider to be objectively bad law on these kind of, you know, gag order things. Because the question that you just asked is a really interesting one. My gut reaction is, I believe these anti-woke laws will find a way to end up in those schools too, and in those places too, the moment that parents in one of those schools have a problem. And the moment that parents in that, that those schools want to urge their lawmakers to prevent any woke stuff from coming into those schools too. So, so it hasn't happened yet. It's not there yet. It will get there. But we didn't even think that we would have a Republican governor at any point in history that would say that private schools, period, should be uh, included in these laws and definitely not uh, private employers. And that's where we're at now. Yeah, so the I, idea that, hey, we'll keep the genie in the bottle somehow, you know, um, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yes, I am old enough to recall when Republicans broadly opposed state intervention, so-called, into the private sector. Doesn't feel like that long ago, does it? It doesn't feel like that long ago <laughs> at all. It doesn't, which should make us wonder where we're at now. So w- with respect you know. to your view on on the path forward for people who genuinely believe that the the in the uh the story that we advocates for educational freedom have been telling ourselves for a long time to give the disadvantaged the most opportunities to choose among a broad range of options for their children uh to you know in, invest as little or as much time as they want into those decisions and to best insulate themselves from the impact of so-called anti-woke lawmaking. I, I, would, I would throw in there, woke lawmaking might not be any better. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, what, is, what do you see as, as the path forward? Um, well, first of all, I would divide school choice up into three camps right now. So the, the one camp that I think is winning the most right now is the monopartisan, monoracial um, school choice movement that wants a very specific kind of heritage-like uh, set of laws uh, in place, and they're winning. I think they're the strongest group right now in school choice movement. There's a second group who knows that that group is wrong. 
and knows and is having backdoor and private conversations with them to say, I think your strategy is wrong and being very gentle with them to the point of being apologist. And they're going to give away the entire school choice bank to that group uh, because they're, they're, you know, so gentle in their uh, being apologist and knowing that they're wrong. There's a third group that I think really do still live the values of um the, the third group is still living the values of choice really can be the opportunity to equalize things for all people, for um, for the disadvantaged, for people of color, for people who are in circumstances where they're redlined into really bad traditional public schools. This could be the way out for them. But that third group who really believes that is the weakest group of school choice advocates right now with zero power, zero foundations behind them, zero money to to create the multiracial monopartisan, I mean, uh, um, um, tripartisan and transpartisan movement that we need for school choice, which is leaving people like me to say, well, you know, listen, I still care about that group of people and championing their needs. So maybe I should allow um, school choice to go off the ledge with the smart white guys that want to either be apologist or want to be evangelists for the monopartisan, uh, monoracial school choice movement. Let them go do themselves damage and ruin their particular part of it because they're having some wins right now. But let's be real. It's going to come back to haunt them. It's, it, there, there is no future in a monopartisan, monoracial school choice movement. It's We're 70 years in to school choice as an advocacy thing and hundreds of millions of dollars. And we still have less than 1% of kids in school choice programs in the country. So if those guys think that the way forward is to take the one group of people who are declining in numbers and declining in kind of like position uh, and going to go down with the, the that ship, then I'll let them go do their thing. Right now, I think the bigger kind of market to work on is if it is really about we want gay kids and 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 black kids and Mexicans and uh, white kids of good conscience and and families of all sorts in all places to have choices and options. That's a different movement now, and I think the biggest where the biggest place that plays is in the, in public school choice. It's to get kind of like the traditional system to fight back by improving and modernizing and in and you know. Uh, uh, creating a better public school choice system while the, the private school choice guys run off the kind of Richard Spencer ledge that they're running off of right now. So I love that. <laughs> I mean, I don't think everybody's going to love that, but listen, well, as, no, as libertarians, we have to have uh, honest conversations right now about where we're at. And those of us who believe in what I just said are losing. We're losing. The guys who are in the room who are winning uh, are taking school choice back 15 or 20 years. Like they're going even longer than that, really, in some ways. And I don't think, where are the really smart Ivy League guys in the room who are like, I think that's a bad strategy. Like I know a little bit about history and I really feel like that will feel good in the moment because we'll get some laws passed and whatnot. Right. But will it get more than 1% of kids into school choice programs? Right. And I don't think so. Chris Stewart is CEO of the Bright Beam Network. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.